broadcasting live from the Raiders practice facility at the Intermountain Healthcare Performance Center. This is the premier destination for an inside look into the Las Vegas Raiders. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor, presented by Tequila Embajador. All right, all right, all right. What's good, Raider Nation? Welcome back, by the way. We were off yesterday. Raider Nation Radio, 920 AM in the huddle. Vinny Bonsignor brought to you by Embajador Tequila. Yep. I had to do the dreaded DMV thing yesterday. Whew. I uh, am just now recovering from it. No disrespect to, to anyone. And thank you to all the kind people that helped out. Uh, but what an ordeal that is. But I'm locked and loaded. I'm officially uh, here in Las Vegas. I got my driver's license. I got the new license plates. Uh, but what an ordeal. So I couldn't do the show yesterday because uh, I was at the DMV for the better part of four hours, even though I did have a uh, an appointment. But um, oh, well, what are you going to do? So uh, anyway, we are back. Um, glad to be here. We are in day four of the second phase of OTAs uh, here at uh, Henderson, the Raiders practice facility. And uh, by all accounts, the Raiders are getting a lot of work in and uh, some, some positive work in. Really good to see uh, how many you know, participants are out there, how many cars are in the parking lot. Uh, it's been a really, really good turnout uh, for the Raiders. Not surprised. It's a really young team that simply needs to get better, needs to take that next step. And, I, and I, you, you feel a certain um, sense of urgency, uh, especially among this young group of players, uh, to take the necessary step forward. A lot is riding on this young core of players. The Raiders have done a massive overhaul over the last three years uh, with the roster. Uh, really, it's been four, four off seasons, four drafts now uh, under John Gruden. Uh, it was a major undertaking. Uh, when he took over in 2018, there was a lot of work to be done. There were salary cap issues. There were obviously roster issues. Um, and he understood that day one and went to work on it. And here we are now, four years later, uh, going into year four, I should say. And I think it's just, what, Derek Carr and just a couple other players that are survivors from that 2018 team. And everything else, every, everybody else, are newcomers, draft picks, uh, some free agent signings, but slowly but surely, and we've been talking about this quite a bit and want your call uh, when you get a chance, 702-365-9200, uh, you know, just talking about what the Raiders are trying to do here and what they're trying to accomplish here. Obviously, it's winning. It's all about winning. Um, but I think what the Raiders have, have, are, are focused on uh, more than anything is winning, but winning it in, but, but doing it in the right way. And, and what I mean by that is building a foundation, setting the stone and building off of that, continually building off of that so that there's no more cases of just fleeting success followed by, you know, major Dropbacks, you know, uh, we've seen that with the Raiders uh, too often over the last what twenty years or so, really, uh, where they would have bursts of a good year here, a good year there, but it wasn't, you know, that foundation really wasn't in place, uh, so that the the fall off was quick in coming, and then a very very deep fall that took a while to try to dig out from under, uh, and and obviously the Raiders kind of got to a point where. That's not 
what they wanted to do anymore. What they were doing, and they understood this, uh, wasn't working, um, at least in terms of a longevity factor. And so, you know, you bring in John Gruden and you hand him a long-term contract and say, look, uh, we understand that there's going to be some challenges to this. We understand it's going to be, in some cases, painstaking. Uh, it's going to be a process. It's going to take some time to do it right. But we believe that you're the coach to get it right, the leader to get it right. Uh, there's going to be some painful moments along the way. But if we stick to that plan and we stay diligent and we stay disciplined, we feel like we can get there. And then when we get to that point, this is the writers talking to John Gruden, then hopefully in a position where there's not these massive rebuilds that have to happen. You draft and develop. Some guys stick around for a second contract. Uh, other guys move on. We talked about this the other day. Get the comp picks. Keep drafting and developing behind them so that you're always in a, in a situation more often than not where guys graduate uh, to second contracts and whether the Raiders want to sign them or, you know, sometimes that dam bursts a little bit and you have to wave goodbye to certain guys, not necessarily because you want to, but because the way this works in the NFL with the salary cap, sometimes you're just in a position where you have to, but it makes it a whole lot easier when the guys that you're saying, hey, look, um, this is a tough business. We like you. We love you. Uh, but you're probably going to get more money outside this building, and we wish you the best of luck. Knowing in the back of the Raiders' head, and the good teams do this, there's somebody right behind uh, that player that's going to be able to provide adequate replacement. And yes, do you use free agency? Obviously, every year you're going to sign a guy here, sign a guy there. You're tinkering. You're trying to get better at a certain position, maybe injuries. Um, you know, have put you in a position where you're going to have to uh, use that uh, tool to, you know, fill a hole or replenish. But you don't want to rely exclusively on that. I don't think, it, you know, this is going to be interest, interesting. Now, you know, as we speak today, uh, I want to say 25 plus the rookie class is 7, 29. Raiders will probably have 30 some odd players <clears throat> under contract after this year going into next year. Uh, there's a lot of players that are on one-year deals right now. Some of them will come back. Uh, some of them won't. So, uh, you know, between next year's draft class and some free agency, th there's going to be some activity. But I, I, I think it might be a situation or should be a situation where, you know, your you're free agency for depth, uh, maybe there's a position that you have to fill immediately uh, but for the most part, I think the Raiders want to be, and what the plan is to the, the plan is to do is to get to free agency next year, where you're pretty set across the board, say for a position here or a position there, uh, and then you are able to finite whatever the the issues are, the needs are, in a way where you'll be able to go out and you know compete for one of the better players at that position, uh, because. You don't have to spend to cover that position and that position and that position and that position over there. You're going to be able to you know, really be selective in how you spend your money because the, the needs are going to be much more minimized than they have been in the past. And that's kind of where the Raiders have been uh, working toward the, the, the destination that they want to get to. And I think this is a really big year uh, for I, – I guess the word would be validation – 
that this thing is really headed in the right direction. I thought the 8-8 eight and eight record last year uh, showed uh, in a lot of cases, especially offensively, uh, that they had made major steps forward uh, on that side of the ball. And I think they wanted to build off of that. Obviously, they got younger and more cost-effective on the offensive line. They were able to uh, add some depth at wide receiver. Now maybe a John Brown and a Willie Sneed, they could push for starting jobs. I think ideally the Raiders want it to be Henry Ruggs and Brian Edwards uh, and Hunter Renfro as the three starting wide receivers. But there's going to be competition, and the best man is going to win, and that's always a good thing. And you know when you start talking about the possibility of a Brian Edwards or a Hunter, whatever, whoever you're talking about of those you know three hopeful starters now being reserves – or if it's flipped and Willie Sneed is a reserve player and John Brown is a reserve player, that's not a bad situation. Uh, those are good players to have uh, as your fourth and fifth wide receiver. Um, you know, same at tight end now. Darren Waller, obviously the star of this team and one of the best players at his position in the NFL. But keep an eye on Foster Moreau. Uh, I was watching a video just the other day with John Gruden. It's a really interesting video. If you haven't uh, had a chance to go check it out, <clears throat> it's uh, it's on YouTube, and it's John Gruden doing a virtual coaching clinic, coaches clinic, uh, for a high school coach uh, that he coached back in the. It's a player. One of his former players is now a high school coach, and that player asked John Gruden, "Hey, would you mind putting together?" Uh, a little bit of a video coaches clinic for our coaches and and our team, and that's what John Gruden did. It was really pretty fascinating, actually, fascinating actually, uh, because uh, I got you, Devon. I got you. Um, it was really fascinating because it really uh, I loved the the footage that they provided that John Gruden provided of, of Raiders practice uh, in areas that we don't get to see sometimes in the, with the media and some of the particular drills. Uh, that they were doing, uh, whether it was for Derek Carr and trying to improve. And this is a, a, a really important, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but I, I was just reminded of, the, of this video. An important factor that I think more and more coaches are understanding that you have to coach up, and that's, and that's playing under duress. Look, there's rarely, ideal, look, when you, make, when you draw up a play and you go out on the practice field and you uh, install that play, you're essentially doing it against error. So everything is going to be perfect. The quarterback makes his drop. The wide receiver runs his route. Uh, the quarterback makes his throw. It's a beautiful spiral. It's an NFL quarterback, obviously. He, sh- he should be able to do that. The guy's going to catch it on the other end. Sometimes you put a defense back there, uh, and that changes the dynamic, but there's no tackling. There's no hard rushing toward the quarterback where you know um, it, 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 there's any danger in any way of getting tackled. That's prohibited. So how do you account for the fact that once you get into the game, that whole pristine thing that you would normally practice on when installing a play and working on a play and working on a play and working on a play, which you obviously have to do. You have to get the timing down. You have to get the cadence down. You have to get the drops down. You have to get the wide receiver, you know, running the routes correctly and the running back, you know, finding the player that he has to go block uh, correctly and being in the right. All of that has to happen. And it's like a synchronized type of a thing. Uh, but when you get on the field during a game, very rarely does it unfold perfectly because there's other human beings whose job is to rush the quarterback and, uh, you know, foul things up, as they like to say. Uh, and foul being a, a word for some another word that they use uh, 
on the quarterback and on the offense and make life difficult. So in this in this coaching clinic tape, you know, John Gruden showed a bunch of video of how they tried to um, emulate a, a, a dangerous pocket or a cluttered pocket and, and forcing Derek Carr to make throws that he has to make but may not be able to make it by getting both feet down and you know making the proper step and everything like that. Sometimes you're going to have to throw it off one foot. Sometimes you're going to have to throw it off your back foot. Sometimes you're not going to be able to get your full, uh, you know, take that right, you know, plant that right foot and then and then uh, move the left foot, plant it, get the throw in the way you normally do in a perfect situation. Sometimes you're not going to be able to do that correct or the exact way that you draw it up. Sometimes you have to go make a play. And you still have to make the play. You still have to get the right velocity on the ball. You still have to put it where it's supposed to be, even though you're not doing fundamentally everything that you would love to do in a perfect situation. So interesting to see how the Raiders really took that to another level last year. And I think it also showed on the field. Derek Carr made many more plays, uh, off-schedule plays, where he you know, had to be on the run and, and, and either take off or – uh, buy himself some time and make a throw. Look, it's not a criticism on any quarterback that has to work toward getting better at that. It's one of the hardest things to do. It really separates the good quarterbacks from the guys that are not going to be here very long. And Derek Carr has slowly but surely gotten better. And just looking at those, uh, the footage of the tapes uh, or that tape that that uh, John Gruden did, you could see why. Uh, it was a real intent and a real emphasis, and it really did help. Uh, but that was a little tangent on that. If you get a chance, go check it out. It's, I forget what the title of it is, but just say John Gruden Coaches Clinic video uh, on YouTube. It should come right up. So in this video, though, he's also talking about Foster Moreau and how they want to make Foster Moreau the next Gronkowski. Will he get there? Well, that remains to be seen. But for anyone who thought last year the signing of Jason Witten was some sort of a slight on Foster Moreau, I keep saying this, and I kept saying it at the time, they needed to get Foster Moreau healthy. Remember, he was coming off a serious knee injury in 2019, toward the end of the year. You can't just assume that that type of injury is going to be perfectly healed up by the time training camp uh, rolls around and, and the season rolls around. And it, it just, that's that's really being presumptuous to think that. Not, not even to mention the fact that it was hard getting players into buildings. In fact, it was impossible to get guys into buildings, remember, because to begin 2020, COVID-19 said, no, all buildings across the NFL are going to be closed. So to, to be able to monitor his progress and see where he was at physically was, uh, was completely closed off for the most part, you know, for Foster. So what happened last year with Jason Witten coming in as sort of an insurance policy to buy Foster time so that they didn't have to rush him back or do so blindly, uh, let him get his feet back under him, let him get back to a point physically where he's fine and he's further enough behind or, or behind beyond uh, the surgery and the injury so that you have the full effect of Foster Moreau, which now heading into as we speak actually – You've got the full Foster Moreau. Keep an eye on Foster Moreau this year. I think the Raiders have big, big plans for him. Uh, but we're talking also about, and in a way, he kind of is going into his second year. Last year, it wasn't a wash. I wouldn't say that it was a wash. It was a valuable season for him. He got healthy. And that was first and foremost. Uh, so you got your backup tight end who's really going to play a lot. 
back to full health and, and was able to learn behind a Jason Witten and was able to refine and, and develop a little bit more. But I think him going into really what's going to be his second full season where it's 100% go and the Raiders have big plans for him, keep an eye on Foster Moreau, along with a bunch of other young players that the Raiders are really, really counting on right now. Uh, and, and they need to take steps forward. They were drafted where they were drafted for a reason. There's plans for these players. And I wrote an article t- uh, that ran yesterday, I believe it was, uh, at the, over at the Las Vegas Review Journal, VegasNation.com, uh, if you want to access it pretty easily. But who among this 2020 Raiders draft class is in position or best position to take a big step forward this year? And if they can get at least three of these guys – three of these players to really take big steps forward, it's going to change the dynamic. I think you, you probably obviously know the, the, the names that we're talking about, Henry Ruggs, Brian Edwards, uh, and Damon Arnett. And who among those three players, and, you know, you start looking behind those guys, and, you know, you got your uh, uh, Tanner Muse, now back fully healthy. Didn't He's kind of a mystery man at this point. Uh, John Simpson, is he going to push for a starting guard job? I think it, ideally the Raiders would love for John Simpson to say, you know what, I'm the dude. I'm going to be one of the guards. I'm, I, I deserve to be starting. If, if, that, if that happens, if that happens, then you know, a Denzel Good could go back to being sort of this super sub who gives you coverage at guard uh, and at tackle. Uh, Amik Robertson, we're gonna get, uh, we'll get to Raider Dave in just one second. But Amik Robertson, the slot cornerback, you know, you go watch the tape of Amik at Louisiana Tech. This dude can play. He just was undergoing, a, I mean, you know, involved in a pretty big transition going from outside cornerback to slot cornerback. Where is he right now? I can't wait to get out there, hopefully next week, uh, to see where some of these guys are, Amik included, and how he's lining up and how he looks and, and where his confidence is and where his insight is and his command is. Uh, he can make a really big impact if he can lock down that slot cornerback job. He's got all the traits that you're looking for. We're going to go out to the Raider Nation listener line. Raider Dave is in Denver. How you doing, Raider Dave? And he wants to talk about Derek Carr. Oh, yeah, I would like to talk about how Carr seemed to me the way I saw it. And certainly, I want your opinion. But I think Carr, from what I saw, and I want your opinion if you saw it too, every time he lost the ball, it was because people were so close to him. It's like trying to throw out of a phone booth. And there was a part of that that he had such confidence in that world-class offensive line that with a little bit of trepidation, he's going to have to play with a little bit more happy feet, be a little more elusive, and at least get that quick foot to one side where they slide the protect protection. That's what I want to see. You see it with Mahomes and a lot of other people. They have a designed way. they got either a tight end on one side and they'll slide the protection that way to pick up somebody who's maybe, maybe rushing in from one side. And that way, he's already got that step. He's off his mark. They don't have to pin their. They can't pin their ears back and just go the same to the same pocket spot all the time. And I hope that's what they do because Carr is one of the best throwers on the run I have ever seen. And I don't. I don't get you know this Mahomes stuff about you know backside underhand whatever. I think this year he's going to probably Mahomes will throw one backhand behind him underhand and probably complete something. But. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being able to step out three steps right or left and just put it on a zip line to somebody. And I've just, Carr is great at that. And I think having that first step to move the pocket a little bit is something that's going to get him away from throwing in that phone booth. But I think that phone booth and those fumbles came from 
just the ultimate amount of confidence that he had with that line last year. Yeah, the fumbles are problematic, um, but some were on him. But a lot of them, I'm just being frank and honest here, was there wasn't much he could do. I'm not quite sure what else he could do um, to protect the ball when things are breaking down the way they were breaking yeah, down. I mean, I his, eyes, his eyes were still downfield when that stuff was happening. Right, and, so, and it shows you how quickly it, it – like in that Atlanta game, there were he had three fumbles in that game. Uh, I, you know, I'm not trying to point fingers, and I, m- I remember getting into it with Demond back in the day uh, on this. But all three, I, it, there's not much you can really expect a quarterback to do when you're under seas in, in in the way they were in that game. It was just a complete breakdown. The offensive line was horrible in that game. Uh, Derek Carr, you know, if you want to say he was a little bit sloppy with the ball, okay, but. Honestly, there's not much you can do. He was under siege in that game. It was just one of those crazy kind of games. The Atlanta Falcons had the Raiders number in in every way. Uh, But outside of that game, he was fairly careful with the ball, uh, whether you're talking about throwing interceptions uh, or even even fumbles. And it's just hard as a quarterback. People say, oh, hang on the ball. Well, when you're getting blindsided, when, when, when two guys are coming at you from both sides, um, you know, and, and there's really no place to turn. Bad things happen. It's just the way yeah. it is. And, and I, I think the interception he had where he got outwitted uh, against Kansas City the year before when a guy came off a coverage of a deep guy and came underneath uh, the, the intended target and just picked it. I mean, those are things where mentally, you know, Carr didn't see that, uh, that ability for the, for the defender to do that. That didn't happen last year. Every turnover, every fumble was either a tip ball or something knocked out of his hands because he's still fighting for time in the pocket. Right, exactly, exactly. He had the, the, the games where he had, you know, the Atlanta game, three, three uh, fumbles, obviously, um, that's a loss. And it was just a, that was a colossal breakdown. Uh, where his turnovers really did hurt big time was that New England game uh, with the two fumbles. But, you know, and so, you know, you got to – that's that, that it's going to happen sometimes. We, we, we see it. Uh, but you got to just kind of get that corrected, whether it's, you know, uh, taking the sack a little bit easier or reacting a little bit quicker. Uh, obviously, you know, you can, you can try to coach that up. But for the most part, I felt like – you know, uh, the turnovers were fairly manageable last year with Derek Carr, and there were interceptions too that were bounced that bounced off guys' hands. So there's not much you could do as a quarterback. Um, you know, when when that's happening, I'm not absolving him from all blame. He deserves some blame, obviously. No, I totally agree, and I think just having him be away, step away, step back. He's got plenty of arm to step back and be able to unload it or throw it away. And you know, 16. Uh, runs from scrimmage to get first downs last year. It was double what he did the year before. I expect that to continue. You know, I don't think there's any reason that his play won't continue to accelerate. And so I just think that when you are talking about a championship quarterback or let's say just a great quarterback, an all-time quarterback, rings are going to be in there. But Ben's one and one. Rodgers is one and one. Manning was one and one. I mean, it's not like everybody was Brady or nothing. And now Mahomes is one and one. Okay, well, hang gold jackets on all those guys. Carr's yeah. not that far from being one and one. I mean, come on, it's not going to take that much. So if he plays ten years, I think he's got a pretty good shot at it. We'll see. And uh, thanks for the call. Uh, obviously, yeah, those those, uh, those sixteen runs for first downs are huge. And he is yeah, to me. He got better last year. Uh, I thought the talent around him was better. And I think 
and this is uh, you know really something to focus on. When I, I did the chart uh, for Raider wide receivers, the, the top wide receiver in catches was Hunter Renfro. And I'm talking about wide receivers, specifically wide receiver, with 54 catches, which was, I think, in the 30s in terms of top in the NFL. And then you had to go all the way down, way further down, uh, with 48 catches, I want to say, um, for, for uh, the wide receiver that left for the New England Patriots. So the, the Raiders need wide receivers to be more productive. And I think that's where Brian Edwards and that's where um, Henry Ruggs comes into play. They need somebody to come up with 60, 70, 80 catches from the wide receiver position. And it has to happen pretty soon. I know spreading the ball around is great, but I still think you need a, another guy that's going to get 60 to 70 catches along with the other uh, wide receivers that they have and, and the way they spread the ball around. But it sure would be nice, I think, uh, if they could get somebody they can rely on that. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor brought to you by Tequila Embajador. Interact with the show. Text Vinny at 69187 or tweet at him at Vinny Bonsignor. This is In the Huddle with Raiders beat writer Vinny Bonsignor on Raider Nation Radio 920 AM. So I don't know if you guys saw or not, but it looks like uh, Jokic, Steph Curry, and uh, Joel Embiid are the three finalists for the MVP award. I'm not sure Embiid's played enough games uh, to win the MVP award. I thought Chris Paul should have been in that mix. But I suggest, if that's the top three, have like a play-in game of 21 and to see who wins the, the NBA uh, uh, Most Valuable Player Award. If there was a game of 21 between those three, I'm just asking you guys, who do you think would win? I'm going to go with Steph. I think Steph would win that game. I know he's not going to rebound, and I know they're going to be able to dominate inside, but he's going to take it outside and beat him off the dribble and uh, do his thing. But I just love playing 21. I don't know if you guys remember that game or know that game, but I think the old hoopsters out there, uh, the old souls, know what 21 uh, is all about. Uh, Hey, I want to bring in a very, very special guest who's going to – Stick with us uh, for the next hour and a half or so until closing time. Uh, you guys know uh, Q Myers, uh, our good friend, and uh, he's going to play uh, a little bit of co-host today and uh, co-pilot today. So, Q, how are you doing, my brother? I'm doing good, man, but you got me fired up and excited talking about 21, man. That used to be my game back in the day. Right. I'm not really the, the 21 guy, but I could play that game back in the day. I, I mean, it was it, if you didn't have enough players to pl- to get a three on three or even a two on two for that matter. If you, if there were just three dudes out there, you can yep. come up with a really really competitive game. And it was, I mean, it be it basically taught you, you every time you you took it to the hole, you're going against two guys. Two guys are defending yep. you. Uh, it's just it was it's actually a pretty darn good game. So uh, yeah, who would you, who was your pick if 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 it came down to that? Oh, I mean, no doubt about it, Steph Curry. I mean, man, I'll tell you right now, as far as if they had won that game last night against the Lakers, and I know they didn't, he was the MVP of the league. You know, I, 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 don't, I think that the Joker's going to win it, but if they had found a way to pull that game out against the Lakers, which they honestly should have won if it hadn't been for so many turnovers, he was the MVP of the league. That dude has done so much with so little. Uh, you just got to give that guy credit. He's just incredible. All right, so what do you think of the plan? I like it if it's more like what we – 
You know, Tuesday was a bunch of yawns, but Wednesday was good. Even the Spurs, who who looked like they were going to get blown out from the jump, they made a game out of it and, and almost won the game. Uh, and then, of course, that fantastic game last night between the Warriors and the Lakers, that was great. Uh, but if, if it's going to be more like that, I'm all for it. I love it. It keeps kind of keeps teams from taking, sort of. And uh, I just think it's I think it's good for the game. But if you have those games like you had on Tuesday, where they're blowouts and sinkers, and they're over before you know it, you use them like background and I'm then never mind. Well, Somebody brought up a good point. If you're going to do it, um, maybe keep let this. I, I don't see why you have you're asking the seven team <laughs> to be a part of this thing. Um, you know, it, it's it's seven seed is a, is a good enough you, you, seventy two games, eighty two games when when things get normal, plenty of, uh, enough time to decide your really for me anyway your top eight teams. You know, uh, yeah. I don't really like the plan. I think it's overkill, but I'm I'm sure because of the numbers last night with the television that it's probably here to stay. Although fat chance you're going to get a Warriors Lakers playing game right. very often, right? So. Exactly. I mean, it just so happened to work out beautifully for the NBA that that did happen this year. Uh, but that aside, if you're going to do it, I would almost suggest doing it where uh, it's just the eight and nine team. It's the eight seed against the whoever the the, the team right behind them, and then yeah. in order for the nine seed to leapfrog over the eight seed, they got to beat them twice. Uh, if the you know if if eight if the eight seed wins game one, it's over. They go to the they go to the playoffs. If nine beats them, then they got another chance to beat them again. If they beat them again, then they – or excuse me, yeah, nine. Uh, nine over eight. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see how uh, where, where it's all headed. Um, I, I, I give the NBA credit for always trying to be creative. I know that there was – you know, there weren't the full 82 games this year. So uh, they were trying to, you know, figure that out. But uh, I just think that – I feel bad for the Warriors because, to me, they're one of the top eight teams in the West without question. They've got the – arguably the MVP of the league – uh, I think that they punched their ticket, you know, uh, doing their thing in the 72-game in the uh, schedule. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm, I'm really with you. And, again, I, I love what Steph Curry's been able to do this year and help guide that team to where they are right now. Uh, you know, if I would tweak the, the play-in game any kind of way just to make it a little bit better, in my opinion, it's what it does. You know, just simple, hey, man, you got one game to get it done. And the Warriors would have came out on the on the wrong end of that as, as last night. But – it was a great, fantastic game where, boy, your fan, I looked at it and said, okay, Lakers, I see you. Tip the cap and move on. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, I'm sure you remember this, but uh, they used to have the first series in the NBA in the NBA playoffs would be a best of three. Do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> when they did yep, the best yep. of three? Those, yep. That's where upsets happen. Exactly. Exactly. Because you can win. You can win two out of three games, you know, and, and just try to win uh, four out of seven is tough. But, yeah, uh, uh, two out of Great. Yeah, because when you think about it, if you sneak a win on the other teams, like if the if the lower seed beats the higher seed in that game one over at their place, then you got you, you have a chance to come home and win the series. We saw that actually happen uh, many yep. times. When did you start following the NBA? Like, what what, what was your kind of entry point into following the NBA? Oh man, well you know being a Bay Area guy, I'm always a big fan. That had Sleepy Floyd, Chris in it, and all those cats. Terry Teagle, and I mean, back in the day, man, I just grew up in a sports home, so that uh, that was actually my first love, uh, and I thought that I was going to be an NBA star at some point, and we all know how that worked out. But uh, yeah, it's just I, I love the NBA, man. Get a 
you know, the, the old school Lakers. That was come up at the huge Lakers. So Lakers Celtics every year for the final, or at least it felt like that, you know. So I'm sitting on the couch and my mom's screaming at the TV every time the Lakers, Eddie Johnson, James Worthy, and Michael Thompson. You know, and Cooper and all them making their moves, and Pat Riley with his hair slicked back. Yeah, man, I'm I'm a I'm an '80s slash '90s baby when it comes to the NBA. Do you remember uh, Dr. Harry Edwards? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. absolutely. Uh, I, I, it was it was for a different story that I was working on. Uh, you know that that I needed his his insight, right? Um, and so we're talking, and uh, and and he, we were talking. I don't know why or how the conversation got onto Magic Johnson, but he he explained Magic Johnson to me in such a great way. Uh, he said, "Look, he goes, he goes on in any given night, and he used to go watch him up in Oakland. Uh, you know, uh, Doctor Edwards worked over at Cal, right? Stanford yeah, or Cal? Yeah. I think it was Cal. So anyway, <clears throat> he would always go watch the Lakers play the Warriors uh, up in Oakland. And he goes, I used to watch Magic, and he had so many different games going on uh, to please so many people, and and so many what do you what do you objectives." His team beating your team, him beating the guy that was was you know uh, that was defending him, uh, him helping some of his teammates get theirs because he was always kind of a giver. Him wanting to put a show on for the crowd, even on the in the uh, in the opposing arena, he always was thinking about that, giving them something. Him wanting to win for the home fans, he goes, he was one of the a guy that just was able to juggle things in a way where. Even if you were a fan of the other team, you usually walked away pretty happy that you got a chance to see Magic Johnson, and he probably left you something that you could personally take uh, out that arena, even if you wanted his the other team to win. Well, yeah, and the thing about it, when it came to Magic, you just knew that he was one of the best dudes on the court in a position. You know what I mean? Like, it's not... He was going to go out there. He was going to leave it all out there on the court. He was going to put on a show, like you mentioned. And most likely his team was going to win because they were that thinking good. But this dude, you just had to respect the fact that whatever position he needed to play, he would do it. And then being a guy that was as big as he was, and he was running the ball up and down the court the way he was and passing the rock. And he was the guy that really had a little bit of swagger, man. He was one of those first dudes that I remember having the swagger as far as, you know, passes and, and behind the back, and I know that there was many that did it before him, but I mean, I, again, still, I'm 44, so you got to remember the time range. He was the one of the first guys I looked at was like, man, that is awesome. That dude can get it. He, he was fun, and then watching those battles between him and Bird and, and him and the Celtics and Dennis Johnson and, you know, and uh, Robert Parrish, the Chief, you know, Big Chief. I mean, it was so much fun watching those series, man. I loved them. Well, as a Warrior fan, Q, I'm going to uh, I'm gonna really, I'm going to this is going to be the TKO punch right here. All right? And I know you know this, but the Warriors had Robert Parrish, right? Yep, yep. And and they had the second overall pick. I want to say it was in the 2000 or the uh, uh, 1981 draft. All right? They packaged Chief and that second pick overall. Might have been the third pick, but it was right around there to get yeah, the yeah. first to get the first pick overall to pick a guy by the name of Joe Barry Carroll from Purdue. And yeah, who did they yeah. trade all those guys to? The Boston Celtics. The Boston Celtics right. in that trade, first of all, dodged the bullet that Joe Barry was. He was one of the great knuckleheads. Just an, a, a weird dude. Okay, um, yeah. you know, yeah. and I say that it, it was eccentric and just difficult. So. Uh, but the, that draft pick, it turned out to be Kevin McHale. So they ended up, the Boston Celtics, with Kevin McHale, 
Robert Parrish to add to Larry Bird. And, and so that was one of the all-time unbelievable trades in NBA history. And I used to always think because, you know, I used to work for the Lakers and we used to always do like stories on the other team as the other team was coming in. If you look at the, at the Warriors, some of the great players that they had in their fold that they let yep. go, it's just, it was unbelievable. There was a long stretch of that happening for the Warriors. And it was just frustrating because you knew, even in Los Angeles, we knew, man, there's a great history of hoops up in Oakland. And if they could just ever get it together, it would be a great little rivalry between the Lakers and the Warriors. It would have been. It sure would have been. But they couldn't get it together. For the longest, they couldn't get it together, you know. And, I mean, even when – I remember when they drafted uh, Vince Carter and then moved. You know, I mean, they had the human highlight reel. I mean, that, that guy. And then they moved him for what, Antoine Jameson? Oh, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, believe me, for the longest, Vinny, in Oakland – we would go to the games to watch the team come in, the, the team that they were playing. And for me, it was always the Seattle uh, Supersonics because I was a big Gary Payton guy, uh, also an Oakland guy. And obviously that, that team was fun to watch. And then anytime Jason Kidd would come to town, it's like, oh, we got to go to the game. we got to go see you know, the hometown kid. So we had always games for the other team. And, well, now obviously it's not like that. But, man, those are some dark, dark days of going to the Coliseum those days. I'll tell you that. St. Joseph's of Alameda, right? For uh, yep, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. I, I know my I know my hoops, man. I know my hoops. All right, we're <laughs> gonna take a break. That. We're gonna take a break. We're gonna talk some more hoops. We're gonna talk some more Raiders, obviously, uh, with uh, Q Myers, uh, kind enough to join us uh, for the uh, for the duration. He's here till closing time, so we really, really want to say thank you to that. Uh, you're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor and Q Myers, brought to you by Tequila and Bahadur. No one gets you closer to the Las Vegas Raiders. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor. We're going to go right back out to the Raider Nation listening line. Raider 27 wants to talk about continuity. Uh, Raider 27, you're here with Vinny and Q Myers. How you doing, my brother? Hey, man. This place is 21, but uh, if you're playing with Q, don't use your government name. Why is that? Huh? <laughs> no, Q and I had a thing on Scott's show about your government name. <laughs> anyway, um, I wanted to talk about continuity. Um, it kind of went right along with Raider Dave's um, call, because we're talking about um, developing players, and you know, I think too many people want rookies to come in and play like they're three- or four-year vets. And Sometimes that happens. C.D. Lamb was a good uh, example of that. But Amari Cooper didn't play that great when he was a rookie. He had some good games. But, you know, I think continuity is everything. And, I and you know, going back to my last call, you know, you hate to lose a defensive coordinator, but at some point in time you got to say enough's enough and change that. Uh, but the more you keep everything the same – the more you develop the players that you have and the more that you draft players that fit what you want to do, um, the better off you're going to be. Leatherhead um, uh, is a great example of that. Nobody can figure out why the play- Raiders drafted him um, because a lot of people didn't have him rated high enough to be drafted at 17. But what they don't really realize is the Raiders want to run that outside, outside zone. That's what Josh Jacobs does best is the outside zone. 
Weatherhead is probably the best tackle coming out in a while at doing that. He's a road grader. Does he have some problems with pass blocking? Yeah, but no problem. We can put up with that for a couple of years and give you some help, a chip here and there. But when we want to run the ball, he's a road grader. He'll, he'll move people and give Josh Jacobs a place to go. You know, defensively, we've got all these good cornerbacks. You mentioned Amik Robertson. It takes three years to develop a cornerback. You don't know what you have their rookie year most of the time. Sometimes you get an exceptional athlete that's good as rookie year, but most of the times, even good quarterbacks get beat up their rookie year in the NFL. It's just harder. It, it really is. And yeah, it it really is. And um, you know, I was I was listening to a to a football talk show earlier today. And uh, it was a national show uh, with Pat Kerwin, um, really good, great analyst uh, for NFL Network. And the caller was uh, a Tampa Bay Buccaneer fan. And the caller was all up in arms because the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, you know, he was talking about the draft picks. And he was, they're, they're all just a bunch of guys that are to be competing for backup spots. And, and, and the point was, I, yeah, because all your, they're not, all your starters are coming back from last year. That's a good thing. But that doesn't mean that the guy that they drafted in the first round or the second round down the road isn't going to be an impact player for you or somebody that's going to end up starting for you. Yeah, this year they're competing for backup jobs because you're set at every position. That's the most ideal situation of all. That's the perfect situation where you're – Drafting, developing, graduating guys uh, that, you know, uh, if you can sign them, great. If not, you know, sometimes it's the, the way this uh, structure works. Guys get outpriced. They move on. You collect the comp picks, but you have somebody behind them that can fill in for the uh, at, at that position. It's this constant draft, develop, get as, mu- as much as, as you can out of these guys, it gets to a point now where you decide whether to keep them or let them go, uh, and you can you can do the let go part a whole lot easier when, in the meantime, you've drafted behind them and are developing players in case you need replacements. That's the way to do it. And the key to it all, first and foremost, uh, and, and I'm pretty sure we have Q back on, is developing that foundation to begin with. And sometimes that takes time, Q. There's There's... The Raiders just weren't there yet last year, and I think they're closing in uh, on 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 being there, closer to where they want to go to, where it's you're developing from within, you're drafting and developing, and yes, you'll be using free agency from time to time, but not in you know to fill that hole and that hole and that hole and that hole and that hole. It's to fill that hole and that hole and everything else we're comfortable with because we've been drafting well and developing well uh, so that if guys do leave for whatever reason, you're in a good position to replace them from within. Yeah, that's what the Raiders want to do. That's what John Gruden wanted to do when he returned. You know, he wanted to go ahead and build this team up and and put it kind of in the image that he wanted. So it wasn't a one-year shot in the dark like 2016 where they were really good in 2016 and then took a step back in 2017. He wants to have a team where he can consistently be a good team, be consistently in the playoffs, competing for division championships, competing for a a chance to go to the Super Bowl. That's what he wants, and that's what, like you said, the good teams do. And I always go back to Baltimore. I think Baltimore is probably the best organization when it comes to drafting guys, getting really good players in the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever round it is, 
And then when they get to the, the point of their contract where it's like, okay, you're going to re-sign this guy or you're going to let him walk. A lot of times they'll let these guys walk, like Kalechi Osemele. He was the guy they were he was the guy that the Ravens let walk and the Raiders signed him to a big deal because well he was available on the open market. But they felt comfortable because they had a young stud coming up behind them that they said, Okay, he'll be cheaper, be just as good as that and so on and so forth. That's what you've got to do. So really what the Raiders need to do, in my opinion, they need to get to the point now where they can identify the players that they can move forward with and the players that can be foundational pieces moving forward and guys that, you know, are probably not going to be getting, you know, second contracts and guys that they can afford to let go. That's These guys need to identify who they are now, and I'm talking about the players on the field. I got two words for you, Q. Andre James. Yeah, there you go. There you go. That, that's a guy that they believe. Exactly right. They let Rodney Hudson go, and I know Raider Nation lost their mind. I know I scratched my head a little bit as well when it happened, but they felt comfortable that this guy could solidify that spot, be that dude, without costing that dude's contract and being a young guy. And that's what good teams do. Now, the question is, is it going to pay off? And the, and the only reason why people question the moves are because they haven't seen the Raiders do it yet. That's the biggest thing. Once they do it and do it consistently – People won't question the organization anymore. I agree. Um, you have to build up that trust value. And, and, like, I saw this up close and personal with the Rams. I've talked about this many times. When they got back to Los Angeles that first year in L.A., everyone in Los Angeles was like, we waited 20 years for this. Send them back to St. <laughs> Louis. They were that bad. But kind of behind the scenes and how they were working it and what they were doing, they were actually – headed in the right direction. Now they bring in Sean McVay and they bring in Andrew Whitworth and Robert uh, Woods uh, and draft Cooper Cup, and all of a sudden the dynamic of their offense changed. But defensively, they were, they, they were in that, you know, the defense was ahead of the offense, but they were doing a pretty good job of drafting and developing and, and, and playing that game to the point where now look at them. They're kind of a perennial playoff contender. They can walk away from players easier because they feel like they have something in the system. And now the team in 2016 that, that Los Angeles wanted to kick back to St. Louis, fans in Los Angeles have a little bit of a confidence factor now in Les Snead and Sean McVay and the right. way they are doing things. And it, it, didn't hap- it didn't take long for that to happen. It's, it was a couple of years, and all of a sudden, oh, Lesney knows what the heck he's doing. Sean McVay right. knows what he's doing. Um, I, the same thing can happen uh, here in Las Vegas. That's what they're striving for. That's what they're working toward. And i got to ask you this. I think I, I give John Gruden a lot of credit for, in a sneaky sort of a way, um, in, a, in a kind of a low-key way that I think people are overlooking. He resisted the urge to do the quick fix. You know how easy it would have been for him in charge, calling all the shots here, to say, I'm going to do it the quick fix way. I'm going to bring in a bunch of veterans and try to win that way. Um, That's what we're going to do here. He didn't. He's actually, to me, and I've talked to him about this, shown a little bit of dis. It's almost ironic, and he kind of laughs and winks like, yeah, uh, not bad for a guy who only plays veterans, right? Like, he knows. He understands what the narrative is out there. but. Do you think he deserves a little credit for going about it this way in spite of what the narrative has been about him? I mean, I do. And, and the reason I do is because I think that if it works, if the, the teardown rebuild and all of a sudden the solidification of all these players that they're bringing in, a lot of these guys start to be big-time players for the Raiders moving forward, I think it has a, more of a staying power. You know what I mean? Again, I think that 2016 was nice and it was a good tease, but that's exactly what it was, was a tease. And it left Raider Nation 
starving. I mean, just absolutely starving for more, which they haven't got. And so they're just so frustrated right now because they want to see a winner. They want to cheer for a winner. And every year it's like, okay, this is the year. Like last year, I didn't think there was any reason why the team didn't make the playoffs. They had an extra wild card game. Uh, I thought that they, you know, were in a good position, which they were, six and three at one point, and weren't able to seal the deal. So, you know, everyone just wants to see them get back there, but not just once. They want to be there consistently where every year where the national media starts talking about the team, they're not talking about, well, this is a team that's going to be picking in the top 10 of the draft the next year. No, this is a team that's going to make a run, and you better look out because if you don't play them, we give them their, their A game every single week out, they'll they'll beat you. And then you'll look up and wonder what happened, and you'll see the Raiders at the top of the division. That's what yeah. they have to do. That's what they can do. But they've got to they've got to build that cupboard up. Yeah, and and I get it. We all understand it, and and rightfully so. You have to build that confidence. That confidence has to has to be built. You can't just ask people to assume that it's gonna gonna work out. I see what the plan is. We'll see if it works. That's the key to it all, whether it works or not. But I but I do believe that that is the plan, and they're working toward that. Whether they get there remains to be seen. And as far as last year, I was with you. I thought there was no reason why they couldn't uh, contend for a playoff. Uh, birth. The problem is that defense just wasn't ready to, to you know, handle its end of the business. And we saw that time and time again. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor and Q Myers, brought to you by Tequila and Bajoda. When we come back, we're going to start getting into some of those 2020 draft picks. It happens so fast and it turns around so fast. We're already talking about the 21 draft picks, rightfully so. But a bunch of those kids from that 2020 gla- class, three or so in particular, really need to step it up. We're going to talk about that on the other side.